This morning we're going to continue our studies of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, uh, the title of uh, this morning's talk, I mean, I, I, sit, I stand at the back sometimes and I'm amazed actually because you know, sometimes when you're preparing you kind of wonder, if, you know, have I kind of prepared the right thing? Am I hearing things right? Just about everything said this morning has just been confirming, um, you know, things that have that have been coming out through through the word this week. And so the title of this morning's uh, uh, talk is uh, "Facing the Challenge of Authentic Christian Living." So we're going to continue our study uh, of Paul's letter. Um, Paul was writing to his trusted friend and companion, uh, a young man whom he regarded, or he came to regard and loved as if he were his own son, Timothy. And Paul, as you know, was God's apostle to the Gentiles. And as an apostle, he preached the gospel, and in, according to my Bible, he did establish churches. And uh, in those churches, he, he identified leaders, he taught and he trained them uh, to take on the responsibility of continuing the churches after he left, and then he would go on and repeat that process in another region. But Paul didn't just abandon them, and to encourage them and to help them sort out uh, issues that uh, arose, Paul would try to revisit them. And if he couldn't, he would send a letter, or at least send uh, one of the men who accompanied with him, sending them as, a, as like an apostolic delegate, as it were. And Timothy was one of these men. Now, some people have an idealised view of the, uh, of the early church, they seem to think that uh, everything was perfect and worked just as God intended. However, where God sows wheat, the devil sows tares. And men soon came into the church who were outwardly religious. They were dedicated to religious observance. They had an appearance of godliness, but they held to false teachings, particularly with regards to matters concerning the resurrection and therefore about the humanity and divinity of Jesus. And in reality, up close, they led immoral lives. Now, in our Bible study the other week, uh, a point that Alan made uh, via Skype, um, he, said, he made this comment that from a distance, uh, trees bearing good and bad fruit appear similar. And this fruit can only be distinguished up close. And therefore, it took careful discernment to identify these characters. Now, the problem facing Paul and Timothy was that these men were assuming teaching and leadership responsibilities in the Ephesian church. Now, Paul could not go to sort the problem himself. You'll remember he was imprisoned in Rome. And by now he was well advanced in years and knew that it uh, would be very likely that he was to die soon by execution. So he wrote to Timothy and he urged him to stir up the gift that God had given him and wrote to encourage him to take responsibility to put things right in the church. And you'll remember, Timothy needed that encouragement. He did not take naturally to leadership and the problems and challenges associated with it. He was somewhat shy and timid, prone to ill health, particularly stomach complaints. So Paul exhorted him to be thoroughly prepared by being willing to endure hardship, just like a soldier, to compete according to the rules like an athlete, and to work hard even when there was little sign of success, like a farmer. He reminded Timothy that his outward conduct should be consistent with the preaching of the true gospel. He was not to seek confrontation, but was to be prepared for it when it came, 
with an attitude that genuinely desired his opponents to come to repentance, recognizing that they were under the intoxicating influence of the devil, and therefore he was to deal with them with humility and patience, and by avoiding unfruitful and pointless arguments over minor issues. So now we're going to come to read. That's a reminder of what we've uh, learned previously. So now we're going to come to read chapter 3. And just to uh, point out a few things to observe as we read through, as we let the word speak to us. See, Paul does not hold back. and He reveals in full detail the extent of the problem. God is light and in him there is no darkness. There is nothing hidden. The Bible is an honest book and does not shy away from telling you the worst. And in chapter 3, we will see true, the true extent of human sinfulness. Paul has not done this to frighten Timothy, but he has revealed to him the full extent of the challenge facing him, so that he can fully prepare, knowing the worst, and therefore not being taken by surprise. He's also been careful to reveal to Timothy the solution to the problem. He just doesn't leave him with the problem, he gives him the solution. And reminds him of how God has been preparing him his whole life for the challenges that he now faces. And as we read, note the absence to any reference to any personal quality of Timothy himself. See, the solution to the problem is the word of God, which Timothy has learned from his youth. And he's been taught this by Paul himself. And he has seen it authentically demonstrated over a period of at least 20 years often in the most trying and stressful of circumstances in the life of Paul. See, Paul was able to say, by pointing to his own life, this is what authentic Christian living looks like. And Paul concludes the chapter by pointing to the origin and source of the word and describes its effectiveness in the lives of those who will hear it, receive it and obey it. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, and theirs also was, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. 
Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you learn them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul begins by referring to the last days and perilous times. And the word translated perilous is the Greek word chalipos. Not sure about the pronunciation, my Greek's not that great, but uh, its meaning is used to describe the ferocity of a wild animal or as a description of a raging sea in a storm. So Paul states that in the last days, the times will be dangerous, they will be threatening, they'll be hard to endure for God's people. But when exactly was he talking about? When are these last days? Well, the last days could refer to the whole of the Christian era, beginning with Jesus' earthly ministry, heralded by John the Baptist. This is, um, we take what we've read before in the, in the book of Hebrews. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways has spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets and has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And this view of the Christian era is also supported by the Apostle Peter when he declared that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost, was the fulfilment of Joel's prophecy. And it shall come to pass in the last days, I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. And when we consider the beginning of uh, the Christian era, times were certainly perilous. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded for his testimony. Right from the time Jesus was born, Herod tried to have him killed. And from the earliest days of his ministry, people also sought to kill him. Indeed, we know he was crucified. But God, but God raised him. He rose again on the third day. Death could not hold him. I don't know how many of you who were here on Tuesday night, but John Anglis reminded us the other night that the Apostle John was the only one of the apostles to die of old age. Yet even he was sent to live in exile on the island of Patmos, isolated from the rest of the world to keep them from hearing his testimony. And one of the new things I did learn on Tuesday night was uh, that John informed us was, was that they even tried to kill John by boiling him in oil, but God spared him. In fact, during the whole Christian era, true believers have faced persecution and danger. Maybe not continuously or universally, and maybe the intensity has been greater and lesser at, at various times, but perilous times have always been present in some form throughout the whole of the time of the church. However, Paul does seem to be indicating that he has uh, in mind a time in the future. He says perilous times will come. Some have taken this to mean that uh, he's referring, uh, his reference to the last days as meaning that he's referring to the time immediately prior to Jesus' return. And Jesus describes uh, these days as perilous in Matthew 24 when he spoke of earthquakes and famines, wars, rumours of wars, oppression, persecution, 
and the falling away in the church when the love of many would grow cold. However, his reason was for writing was to prepare Timothy for the worst. So clearly Paul was referring to perilous times that Timothy was to experience. So what do we conclude from all this? Well, firstly, as he says later on, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Secondly, perilous times will become more intense, more widespread and more constant immediately prior to Jesus' return. And lastly, when we read Paul's earlier letters, they suggest that he lived with the expectation that Jesus would return in his lifetime. Now, in his current situation, imprisoned in a Roman jail and expecting to die soon, he no doubt realised that this was becoming increasingly unlikely. However, Timothy was still a young man and Paul no doubt still expected Jesus to return in his lifetime, if not his own. Paul then goes on to identify the cause of these perilous times. And it's men. Now man was created in God's image. Therefore men are created to love. However, who that love is directed to will determine what kind of people we become. There are two options. Men will either love God or they will love themselves. And men who love themselves will manifest this by also loving money and pleasure. Make no mistake, it's not just the rich who love money. There are many poor people who crave riches and will gamble away funds that they can ill afford in the pursuit of riches. And why? Because they want to do and live as they want. Because they love pleasure. Now people who love God, by contrast, will want to obey his commands and love his people. John the Apostle wrote, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now forgiveness is a key and central characteristic of the Christian life. And forgiveness is primarily concerned with reconciliation and the restoration of relationships. And I don't know if you notice as we read, the words that Paul uses to describe those who love themselves are all about the breaking down of relationships. Boasters. It's very hard to become friends with someone who thinks he's better than everybody else. Proud, or some versions translate that haughty, that is people who look down on other people. Blasphemers, or those who are abusive. See, those characteristics are not conducive to forming or maintaining good relationships. And you certainly wouldn't want such a person living next door. The next five words, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving and unforgiving are all translations of Greek words that have a particular reference that describes attitudes within families. They are in fact the exact opposites of what a godly family should be. God has put us in families and the godly family will be characterised by obedience, gratitude, respect, affection and reasonableness. Indeed, when Paul chose men to lead churches that he planted, he would look at their families. Men whose families were characterised by the above would be chosen. Paul writes, an elder should be the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, in addition to many other things, hospitable, able to teach. And then he says, one who rules over his household well, having children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, 
how will he take care of the church of God? So godly homes will be characterised by obedient children who respect their parents' authority, who have an attitude of thankfulness. There will be a natural love and affection in the relationships between fathers and mothers and between fathers and mothers and their children. No families are perfect, and issues do arise from time to time. So an attitude of reasonableness is required to air those issues, to think them through, and to admit when we are in the wrong, and to be willing to work out a solution. Indeed, it's the ability to reason that is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. For God himself said through the prophet Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, you should be as white as snow. God wants us to learn how to reason so that he can reason with us. He wants us to think through the issue and understand the problem lies with us. It's our sins that are like scarlet. But there is good news. Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin. Not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power over us and the influence over us. And ultimately from its presence altogether. We shall be as white as snow. Ungodly families, by contrast, will be characterised by disobedience and disrespect for parental authority, ingratitude, strained relationships, mistrust and strife, and an inability to resolve issues because of an unwillingness to reason, to accept that we might be at fault, an unwillingness to be forgiving when we've been wronged, and an unwillingness to, for to seek forgiveness when it's our fault. And Satan knows how to destroy societies, and he does so by targeting families. And for the past 60 years or so, this country, in, in, in this country there has been a sustained and deliberate attack on family life, much of it through the media and entertainment industries, films and television, but also through the political world and those who govern us. And we are now reaping what we have sown. Family life is breaking down. Family is being redefined. Most recently, marriage has been redefined. And the breakdown of relationships as a consequence has been increasing throughout our society. Paul goes on with his description of human sinfulness as slanderous, treacherous and despisers of good. Isn't that an apt description of our news and media industries? He mentions without self-control. Now, one of my roles when I was a teacher was, for many years, I was an assistant head of year. And part of that role included being called out to, to go to uh, classrooms where the behaviour was getting a little bit out of hand. And quite often when you took the culprits aside, uh, they would often use the defence of blaming their behaviour on the teacher's inability to control them. Now many didn't realise what they were saying. They were saying in effect, I can't control myself and I need somebody else to do that for me. Now we need to be careful here. Because the description that Paul was giving here was not primar primarily directed at the world outside. He was concerned for the world outside, but his immediate concern was all this was happening inside the church. And the effect of this false teaching was the breakdown of family relationships and relationships in general within the body. And verse 5 confirms this, describing the false teachers as having a form of godliness. You see, the world has no concern, nor does it even try to appear godly. He also instructs us to turn away from such people. If he was describing the world, we'd probably all have to go and live on Mars. 
Now, I just want to give you an analogy, and I think uh, an analogy that I um, heard many years ago, and I think it was David Pawson, but don't quote me on this. Um, but this is the analogy that I just want to give you. Um, the world is like the sea with people in it crying out to be saved. The church is a lifeboat, and a lifeboat needs to be in the sea to be effective. However, if the sea gets into the lifeboat, then we're all in trouble. We're all going to drown. And Paul has made the extent of the problem abundantly clear to Timothy. The ship has started to take on water. The sea is getting into the lifeboat. The world is invading the church. This is why false teaching is so dangerous. And this is why Timothy is being charged to fight against it. Paul then goes on to describe the strategy of these false teachers. Make no mistake, these false teachers are outwardly religious. They're dedicated. In fact, they're zealous in their desire to win people over to their teaching and build up a following after themselves. They are strategic in their pursuit. They're not direct and open, but they're secretive. They're cunning and they're sneaky. They look to take people captive. They look to mislead and deceive and make a prisoner of those who hear and follow them. And like all predators, they target the weak and the vulnerable. And in particular, Paul mentions gullible women. Note that Paul is not talking about all women generally, but he's referring to a particular group who are gullible, the type of people who lack discernment and who will listen to anybody. They have a morbid love of novelty, and they seem incapable of reaching any settled convictions. As Paul says, they're always learning, and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul also mentions their moral weakness. He says they are laden with sins and led away by various lusts. False teachers are very skilled at preying upon feelings of guilt and insecurity, and will do so in order to take people captive. Now, I've got no doubt that many of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I know some men like that too. And you'd be right. See, the church is full of men who have been led astray and deceived too. So why does Paul address the women? Well, I'll give you some reasons. See, firstly, Paul has been involved in Christian ministry for over 30 years. He has seen these false teachers trying to infiltrate, infiltrate the church. And throughout most of that time, and from his experiences... He has concluded that the preferred strategy of gaining entry and influence into the church was by targeting vulnerable women. And I think if we were, took the time to study this, I think we'd find it's probably still true today. False teachers preferentially, though not exclusively, will target vulnerable women. Now remember, Paul has already told Timothy in chapter 2 that these men were under the intoxicating influence of Satan should therefore come as no surprise that they would use the same strategy that he employed in the Garden of Eden. However, this does not absolve men from any responsibility. In fact, it should convict us of just the opposite. You see, Satan's success has been largely due to the consequence of men failing to effectively exercise their role of spiritual headship. And one of the things I believe that God has been convicting the men of this church is that we've been shying away from this responsibility and that's something, as men, we need to put right. Now, before moving on, uh, I want to bring a, a sense of balance because the Word of God does have a high regard for women of virtue. 
I don't know how many of you heard when uh, Stephen Briggs came to uh, a Truth Seeker meeting about four years ago. He gave an excellent exposition of Proverbs 31. And I just want now just to read a few selected verses, edited highlights if you wish, with the, with the view that as a teacher I'm setting your homework, that you go away and read, read the whole of Proverbs 31 as a, as a meditation perhaps later today. So let me just read a few selected verses from Proverbs 31. Just listen for now. As I said, go away and uh, just meditate on the whole chapter uh, at some point uh, um, in the not too distant future. So just, just, just listen to this. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. Strength and honour are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works of praise in the, in the gates. Now in concluding this section, Paul likens the false teachers to Jannas and Jambres, who, although not specifically named in Exodus, were in fact the magicians who opposed Moses in Pharaoh's court. Now this should serve as a warning and an encouragement to us. As a warning, because these were powerful men, men of influence, able to perform miracles, signs and wonders through the forces of evil. We should not underestimate the strength of our enemies. No wonder Paul told Timothy to prepare with the attitude of a shoulder prepa soldier prepared to fight, an athlete training to win, and a farmer producing food on which people's lives would depend. But we also should be encouraged, because Paul states in verse 9 that they will ultimately fail, they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all. Now having given Timothy a full account of the problem, Paul now gives Timothy the solution. And the solution is the word of God. In this last section, Paul brings home to Timothy the fact that God has been preparing him for this time throughout his whole life and urges him to continue in the things that he has learned and been assured of because he knows from whom he learned them. For the past 20 years or so, Paul has been Timothy's teacher and mentor. And in that time, Timothy must have listened to Paul preach on literally thousands of occasions. Not only that, he has witnessed firsthand how Paul has put his own teaching into practice. Paul was able to point to his own life and say, this is what authentic Christian living looks like. And in particular, he draws attention to his willingness to endure persecution and suffering for the gospel he believes in. One test of authenticity is a willingness to suffer for what you believe in. And persecution has a purifying effect on the church. Genuine believers will endure. Those without genuine faith will fall away. Paul also mentions his manner of life. 
And as we study the life of Paul, we would see that he lived a life of humble servanthood. Jesus taught that whoever is to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven must become a humble servant. Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Timothy had seen all this consistently in the life of Paul, but not as a passive spectator, but as an active participant, sharing in those same experiences through all the years that he'd lived and worked alongside Paul. And to clarify what I, what I mean, I'll give you another na- analogy, but remember it is only an analogy. I don't know if you, any of you have ever watched cycle races. Now, I'm not a big fan of cycling, and from, from the few races that I've watched, I've discerned that the strategy for the team seems to be that one rider has the job of leading the pack. He bears the brunt of the buffeting of the wind and weather, shielding and protecting those behind. And at an appointed time in the race, he moves over and another rider from the pack takes the lead. And although it's harder for the lead man, it's still hard work for those in the pack. They too must train equally hard. They must too observe a strict diet. They attend the same meetings and obey the same agreed strategy. No doubt in the morning their legs hurt just the same. Now Paul is like the lead rider. It's been harder for him. He is led from the front. He has borne the brunt of the opposition. But now his race has been run and it's time for Timothy to emerge from the pack and assume the role as leader and all the responsibility and challenges that go with it. Now, when the leader of the race moves aside, he does not hand his bicycle to a roadside spectator and say, you take over. They haven't been prepared. They're not capable. Only a member of the team has been in the race, gone through the same training and understood the strategy, is able to assume that role. And in the same way, Timothy's experience of running the same race as Paul, albeit from a subordinate position, has been a preparation for the task that now faces him. Paul then reminds Timothy that he has known the scriptures from childhood, no doubt taught to him by his mother Eunice and supported by his grandmother Lois. And almost every week, Tom reminds us of the importance of parents teaching their children the scriptures. See, the work of the Sunday school teachers should only supplement what the parents do daily. And who knows what challenges our children will face in 20, 30 or even 40 years' time. Are we preparing our children to face those challenges by feeding them with the Word of God? Will God call upon them to take a lead role in proclaiming and and preserving the true gospel? Now in drawing Timothy's attention to how God's been preparing him for the challenge ahead, Paul has not referred to any personal qualities that Timothy possesses but rather he is focused on the influence and the effectiveness of the word of God in his life. And Paul now concludes the chapter by focusing on the word itself. In particular, he reminds Timothy of its origin. All scripture is God-breathed. And then its effect in the lives of those who hear it, receive it, and obey it. Let's just take all scripture is God-breathed. This means that the word of God originated in the mind of God and was brought into existence by the breath of God and it was communicated to us through human writers without destroying their individuality 
or their active cooperation. Paul says this word is profitable. In other words, it's good for us because its effect is that it's able to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. The scriptures teach us what is right. It's profitable for doctrine. It teaches us what we need to believe and how to distinguish truth from error. He says it's profitable for reproof. That is, the scriptures identify what's wrong in our lives, but not for the purposes of condemnation, but so that these can be put right. The scripture brings out what is wrong for the purpose of correction. The scriptures give us instruction for training in righteousness. God gives us his righteousness as a free gift. He clothes us in his righteousness, but he does not force it upon us. He does require our cooperation, which is why the purpose of the scriptures is to train us in righteousness. Here we see that dynamic again that we've mentioned before. Divine inspiration combined with human cooperation. And it's the scriptures that equip us for good works. And good works should be apparent within the church, although they should never become an end in themselves. See, when good works are done apart from the inspiration of the word of God, when good works are done at the expense of the preaching of the gospel, they become dead works. Which is why I get worried when I hear people in churches saying that the church does not need more Bible study. That people have been already educated way beyond their obedience. To a so rather than encouraging diligent Bible study, they encourage people to attend their courses and programs to discover their gifting in order to do good works. And in doing so, fulfilling their potential. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that it's the scripture the scriptures that equip us for good works and the two should never be separated the scriptures then the word of God is as relevant today as it was for Timothy in the first century the problems that Paul is charging Timothy to address are the same as those God is calling us to deal with false teaching has entered the church and increasingly the behaviour and character of the church is being typified by those described by Paul as being lovers of self rather than those who love God. The sea has got into the lifeboat. We used to belong to a church whose strategy for winning people to Christ was to find ways of getting people through the door so that they can see that we're normal just like them. Hmm. Well, that is the complete opposite of what the scriptures tell us. You see, if we've been born again, if we've repented of sin, if our old life has been crucified and we've become a new creation, then we're not like them and we should not appear so. See, to the world we're not normal. The Bible says that people will think it's strange that we no longer run with them in the way that they live. The Bible describes us as sojourners and pilgrims. We are therefore strangers in this world. We don't belong. We don't fit in. If the world comes into our churches, and sees us, as, sees us as normal, then the lifeboat is going to sink. Now just as in Timothy's day, the solution is not in any personal qualities that we may have, but it's the word of God. It's the word of God which Peter describes as pure spiritual milk, pure in that it's undiluted, it's uncontaminated with any human preservative or supplement. Nothing added, nothing taken away. And it's to be taught in its entirety. We need the whole counsel of God to be proclaimed. 
to be heard, received and obeyed. For we need to be doers of the word, not simply hearers. Trust and obey, as the hymn writer says. And our obedience is motivated by our love for God. And as we do so, our lives will be increasingly characterised by humble servanthood and a willingness to endure suffering, hardship and persecution. As Paul said, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In our day, as in Timothy's, the sea has entered the lifeboat. And we are being charged, like Timothy, we are being called to address this issue by by following Paul's example and fully facing the challenge of authentic Christian living. And may God bless us as we do so.